When you're looking down, what are you seeing? I see my kneecap in the middle of my thigh. Whoa. So my knee had literally, I looked down and I couldn't extend my leg and it's completely like a rubber band just sort of buckled backwards. Um, and I looked down and I could see my kneecap completely in the middle area of my thigh with no knee to account for where it's supposed to be. Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman on Christmas Day, 2018. What you just heard may not seem like a nice package to be unwrapped, but trust me, if you listen to the entire story that follows, by the end, it will bestow much wisdom upon you. My guest today is Gotham Gulati. I know Gotham for a couple of years now. Gotham is a doctor and internist turned consultant in the healthcare space. Met him while I was speaking at an event. He lives on the East Coast, I live on the West. We try and see each other whenever we cross paths. Funny that the story you're about to hear involves a dance because I have a vivid memory of Gotham and his wife on the dance floor at the wedding of Lee Rahm and Carolina Siegel. Lee Rahm is a founder of Click Health, a cutting-edge marketing and technology company headquartered in Toronto and New York. Lee Rahm and friends will make heroic appearances in the story you're about to hear, and you'll soon understand why Click Health is frequently the recipient of the Best Workplace Award. So what happens is I get an email from Gotham that he's coming to L.A. Naturally, I invite him to breakfast. He comes into the deli slowly with a brace on his left leg. My eyes squinch. What? He starts to tell me the story behind the brace. My eyes go wider and wider and I say, hold on, we got to record this for the podcast which is why you're about to hear Gotham's Maasai Warrior dance story. As you've already gathered, it's not a particularly comfortable story. It's about what happens when you have a medical emergency on a distant continent where the only light at night for miles around comes from the stars above and a campfire. By the end of the story, I thought I'd taken the entire journey back to health with Gotham While bruising to listen to at times, there's a realization at the end that's a great gift to us all. In fact, you could put the message on a My Intent bracelet. My Intent is a transformational bracelet, a medallion you chisel a word into, a word that you'd like to be your North Star. You stylishly wrap that word around your wrist, and it's there to guide you as you go forward. After Gotham finished telling the story, I asked him if he had a word that he was focused on for the new year. Oh, Gotham loved the question. He loved it because he had already invented a word, Gobi-Doo. After all the pain and craziness you're about to hear, Gotham wants to phrase his future this way. Go to interesting places, be with interesting people, do interesting things. Gobi-Doo. Well, Gotham, headed your way as a My Intent bracelet with the word Gobidoo chiseled into it to help make 2019 a special year for you. Anyone who stops to ask, what's that on your wrist? And believe me, people will. Tell them to go to myintent.org. There, they'll see Beyonce with a My Intent bracelet on her wrist. I'm telling you, Just pondering about the word to put on your bracelet puts you in some pretty accomplished company. But the gifts don't stop there, Gotham. Oh, no. Santa wants to make sure this is also a very relaxing year for you. So you're also going to receive the most comfortable sweatpants on the planet, courtesy of my other sponsor, Sportique. Gotham, it makes me smile. Just thinking of you, throwing those sweats on. After everything you went through, your legs are finally going to know the meaning of the word comfort. 
Anyone looking for the softest hoodies, sweatpants, and tees should go to sportique.com. You spell it S-P-O-R-T-I-Q-E.com. There's no you in Sportique, and that's what makes it unique. Sportique hoodies will also be going out to winners of the Why Is Your Best Friend, Your Best Friend contest. Listeners of Big Questions from all around the world have sent some phenomenal stories about friendship into calfussman.com. Some have made me laugh out loud. Some have made me tear up. You'll hear some on next week's episode when I announce the winners of the hoodies. For now, let's get straight to the Maasai warrior dance story with Gotham Gulati. Well, we're gonna get the great Maasai dance story right now. I've only heard part of it, and but I'm gonna ask you to go back and tell it from the very beginning. This is good. I've been trying to think about how do I memorialize this story? Because somehow it has to be documented and told. And what better way than telling the story to the Cal Fussman <laughs> and having it memorialized on the... The question is going to be, what's the big question that comes out of the Maasai warrior story? Well, let's pick it up at the start. We have a mutual friend, Lee Rom. And he is going on safari, and he invites you along. You take your family. How many people are in the group? So there's probably around 20 of us, I think, in total. And where is the safari? So we fly in, actually, the the purpose of the trip was actually to undergo a charity mission trip, a service mission trip with Me To We Charity, um, under the guidance of Craig Kielberger, who's actually the founder of Me to We. And we were to spend about seven, eight days uh, working in the camps of the, the Maasai region and helping this indigenous population uh, sustain themselves, right? From health perspective, from education, uh, farmland, food, etc. cetera. Um, but before that, we thought we'd have a little bit of fun and typical Liram style um, decides to orchestrate a three-day safari glamping style uh, in Kenya, right at the border of uh, Tanzania and Kenya in the Maasai Mara region, which is essentially the, the Kenya side of the Serengeti. So everybody goes over. You land in Nairobi properly. Yes, sir. We, we, we land perfectly fine. Everything's great. And uh, this was a trip of a, a lifetime for us, for me personally, uh, for my family and, and, and my wife especially has always dreamed about making a trip uh, such as this one. So we're really honored and, and privileged and, to be there. And you've got your kids along. We've got the kids. I have an eight-year-old son and a six-year-old daughter. What What are their names? Sai is my son's name and Gia is my daughter's name. All right. And they were both thrilled to be out there. Of course, our biggest concern at that time was, are they going to survive the flight all the way to Kenya from the Washington, D.C. area? And they were perfectly fine with that, which was fantastic. So we get there. And of course, it's, it's sensory overload, a whole different world. I've uh, been to India a number of times, so it wasn't completely alien in terms of seeing that part of the world um, that's that's uh, rather underprivileged compared to what we used to hear in the States. But we get into Nairobi, the whole crew is together. Uh, we hop on a little, um, I don't know what it's called, a little puddle jumper plane, um, you know, jet, jet engine plane that takes us from Nairobi um, and lands just what it seemed like, just dirt in the middle of the, the Maasai region. But as soon as we land and get off the plane, uh, we had um, sort of this entourage of these safari guides and the local Maasai warriors uh, really welcome us into the region. And they had almost picturesque postcard, like these four Land Rover safari Jeeps um, ready to transport us all over to, to the main camp. Why are Maasai warriors famous? Well, I mean, first of all, to be honest, going into it, I was a little bit naive. I didn't really know too much about their background, but coming out, I've learned quite a bit. They're, the Maasai people are, are sort of this rare breed of tribesmen, tribal people, um, who still uh, hold true to their original culture. They live off the land. They live amongst the animals. 
Um, and they really, you know, even though you'll find them with modern day phones in today's day and age, but they, they walk around with very simplistic clothes, very simplistic shoes, non-materialistic uh, for the most part, um, you know, living amongst themselves with little mud huts, uh, you know, made off of the land themselves. Um, but they have a culture that's so rich in history that uh, the warriors have really been known because they've been able to protect the camps um, and that region for so many centuries, um, despite everything being developed around them. And uh, to become a warrior, what I learned is, is really not, not easy at all. Um, what do you got to do? Well, starting from a very early age, uh, the, the young males um, undergo uh, a sort of a ritual uh, in their teens um, that's basically undergoing circumcision without um, any kind of anesthesia. And, and they cannot flinch uh, whatsoever. So what the young males start doing starting at the ages of nine, eight, nine years old is you'll see on their arms, they start slashing with sort of a knife and they're not allowed to flinch. So they're training themselves essentially to be sort of having that warrior mentality of being able to take pain and sort of going into a different world. Um, and they put them through a series of tests along the way um, on their bodies. And some of them you'll see sort of with, uh, you know, mangled or twisted ears, which is part of the ritual um, that some of them go to. Now, some of the techniques that they're doing are being a little bit modernized. For example, it used to be tradition that they go out and on their own uh, into the into the Maasai region and kill a lion and bring the lion back um, as sort of a young teenager, as part of their uh, sort of code to becoming a warrior. Uh, now, of course, because lions are becoming extinct, that they're starting to modernize some of the, 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 the rituals to uh, preserve the nature in the area that they're in. So did you even know that there was a Maasai warrior dance when you went over there? I had no idea. No idea. No idea. So they come and they have this sort of signature clothing and they're really friendly people. A lot of them take actually an American name so we can communicate. But anyone who's in the, the safari region has to be accompanied by a Maasai warrior because the animals run wild. You're essentially in, you know, wild territory where anything can happen and they protect your camp. And so the safari guides essentially set up the camp and it's really beautiful the way they set it up. But the Maasai warriors are really surrounding the camp and there with each group protecting the individuals. So we went through the first day and it was beautiful. And we saw the animals. I mean, what'd um, you see? Well, we saw uh, more zebras than I ever thought I, I'd see. I thought, you know, zebras were kind of like the, the equivalent of, of pigeons in New York. I mean, they were everywhere. Um, everywhere you turned was a, was a beautiful zebra, but, uh, uh, we saw. I heard zebras. No zebras stripes are alike. That's true. That's true. It's like a it's like a thumbprint or a fingerprint. We saw giraffes. The giraffes were, were gorgeous, especially when you see them in herds and they they start running. I mean, those those are some majestic animals. Uh, we saw a, a very rare uh, cheetah sighting, um, and largely it's difficult to see cheetahs because there's usually one cheetah per eighty uh, mile radius. Um, they're sort of territorial. But the reason we were able to see the cheetahs is because the cheetah had a cub. And so cheetahs don't migrate as quickly as, you know, for at least about one or two weeks with the cub so they can actually feed and, and go hunt. So we saw those. We saw hippos, uh, which were just way bigger than I ever thought they'd be. And those um, are nasty animals, Those right? are, yeah. They all, you know how they, they kill you? And actually the number one cause of death in the safari regions is hippos. And people think that they can get pretty close up. They're faster than people think. And they're, they're vegetarian for the most part. And I think what they do is they come up and they'll grab you and they'll literally bite you in half and then spit you out into two pieces. Like, ah, wrong meal. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, you know, so we were there with the hippos for some time and we got some good shots. But um, at some point, the Maasai warriors were sort of our guides and they can sense when the hippos were getting a little angry. And, and it was about time to sort of drive away at that point. So it was great to have them as, as our guides. But um, as far as the dance, so we came back and every time when... when uh, so when, you, got, it's, you have a great day of seeing all the animals. Everything is going wonderfully. How are your kids doing? They're having a blast. And we're jumping in and out of the safari Jeep. Um, no problem. We're, we're you know trekking outside of the, the Jeep, back in the Jeep, sort of traversing the landscape, hunting down different types of animals and trying to locate them on the walkie-talkies based on what everyone else is seeing around. 
Um, and of course, when nightfall hits, you, you want to get back to camp because there's no streetlights or anything to really go off of. I'm, I'm pretty just impressed that the safari guys can actually navigate their way without any sort of GPS just by looking at landmarkers. So our sort of night ritual was we get back to the camp and everyone would freshen up. Um, it was beautiful because they'd have sort of an open bar uh, nicely set out uh, by a bonfire and then a couple of bonfires around with some chairs and it would get a little bit chilly at night. Um, and uh, so we did this for the first night. We did the same thing on the second. On the second night, I heard a little sound in the distance when we were sitting by the bonfire after we came back. And it was this incredible, beautiful chant that you could hear in the distance. Um, and there's no lighting around. So all we had was this bonfire to go off of. And it, that, that chant was getting closer and closer uh, each minute that went by. And then all of a sudden we turn our heads and we see the whole group of Maasai warriors uh, essentially performing their local ritualistic tribal dance and showing us, you know, what would be sort of a typical warrior dance um, in their local huts and, and areas of where they live. And it was it was beautiful. There were lots of jumping and, you know, in, incredible uh, sounds coming coming out of their mouth. They also had some 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 instruments that I don't recall the names of, but they were going around the bonfire in and out, and then. Uh, at one point, they started calling all of us into, uh, into, the, uh, into their dance to join them. And so they pulled my son, uh, Sai, uh, who's eight, uh, in with them. And of course, I went with my son at that point. And um, it was wonderful. There was, you know... Well, what's the dance like? So it's, it's um, you know, there's some chanting along with it, but mostly it consists of jumping. So these guys, I have never seen, unless you're wearing Air Jordans, I do not know how... <laughs> anyone catches height like these guys do. And they're just wearing like wooden sandals, right? And some of them weren't even wearing shoes at all. Uh, but these guys could catch air better than the best NBA player could. So that's that consists of their jumping. I think that's, and they sort of would compete, like one would come out and would start doing the jumping and then the next person would come in. Almost like you're, you're watching like a street performance of breakdancing where they're each trying to compete with each other, except for their competition, it was about sort of the technique of the jump and the height that they get off the jump. Now, when, when we got in there, we were jumping with them, but I wasn't even going to try to get the air that they were. Um, and that's when all of a sudden something went wrong. Well, what, what happened? So as, as I was pulled in and, and, and enjoying ourselves, I handed my, my phone uh, to my wife to, to take some pictures because I, I thought this would be pretty fun to capture. And I started joining in, joining in with, the, with the jumping and all of a sudden... Um, I fell straight to the ground and it was the, it was the weirdest sensation. I, my knee buckled from underneath me. I felt my right leg land and my left leg literally felt like an eternity where it went into a ditch. It just never landed. And it may have been a split second, but it probably felt like a good 30, 30 seconds to 60 seconds of just sort of free fall, oh, um, on my left side. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a physician, so, and, and I've had sort of chronic pain in the left knee, but nothing that required any medical attention um, or intervention at any point. Uh, just probably what, you know, age would bring over the course of time. How, how old are you now? I'm 43. Okay. And uh, I had injured it playing basketball or lacrosse back in high school, um, just like sprains here and there, but nothing, nothing serious. So the interesting thing here is, now you're a doctor, you know how the body works, and you are in a place that is a long way from medical care. Is your mind thinking, I know how to take care of this? Or is your mind thinking, uh-oh? It, it's, 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 uh, it's definitely not thinking the first one, <laughs> because I don't think I've ever, I'm an internist and I've never taken really care of an injury of something of this sorts. Um, this is a pure orthopedic injury and it's actually very rare. Um, the injury that I sustained was a complete patellar tendon rupture, um, which isn't something I would find out until later once we get into the hospital. Um, but when you're uh, looking down, what are you seeing? I see my kneecap in the middle of my thigh. Whoa. So my knee had literally, I looked down and I couldn't extend my leg and it's completely like a rubber band just sort of buckled backwards. Um, and I looked down and I could see my kneecap completely in the middle area of my thigh with no knee to account for where it's supposed to be. And so my initial gut reaction sort of being, being the physician was, hey, perhaps this is a, 
a dislocation, like a knee dislocation, like a shoulder can dislocate. So you gotta and pop if, it back in. So you gotta pop it back in and you have, you have 10 seconds to pop it back in. Otherwise the inflammation kicks in and then it becomes really tough and you can't pop it back in. So that was actually going through my head because I was like, well, we're in the middle of nowhere. I can't, we can't, I can't just drive up to a, a clinic or a hospital and get it corrected if it is dislocated. So my immediate reaction at this point, and this is before anybody even recognized something was wrong, was to just throw out my bottom of my leg. So I pulled out the bottom of my leg and then straightened it out. And I looked at the kneecap and I just took my other hand and just shoved it down oh. to where it's supposed to be. And uh, nothing happened. <laughs> so nothing the knee, happened. The knee snapped right back into the thigh. My leg just snapped up again like a rubber band. Oh, um, man. And that, I think, is when the pain oh. kicked in like I've never felt before. Never felt before. And now everyone realizes something serious has happened. And I look over and, and of course, my wife is sitting here thinking like, oh, like really? Like this is not thinking that it was as serious as it was, but um, she's like, great. Of all times, if this is the time he's got to get injured. <laughs> no, the, um, it's kind of a funny reaction. I probably would have had the same reaction had it been me on the other side. But then I think once they realized it was, it was much serious, much more serious than we thought, they ended up carrying me over to um, the tent and put me on a cot. Now this is right at, it happened at, it started becoming dark around 6.37 at night, and this happened around 7.20. So literally nightfall had just set in, sunset had and just there, set there's in. there's no, basically you're operating on starlight yeah. when the stars come out, that's it. Yep, and the, and the fires that we had right. kicking from the, from the dancing. And so we get to the cot, and all of a sudden, so we've got the whole crew, right? So we've got 20 of us are part of the crew, I've got my family, we've got the safari guys, we've got, the, we've got now like maybe 10, 12 Maasai warriors there, um, and of course, they're trying to pick me up, bring me back in. I don't think they realized what had happened. Um, and then when we get on the cot, there was one other physician who was part of our crew, Dr. Ron Cohen, um, who, I mean. Didn't he, he was a doctor and then he left to be an actor? He did have a stint of acting. <laughs> yes, that's true. He did. And then he became the founder and CEO of, of one of the largest uh, biopharmaceutical companies that, called Accorda Therapeutics. Yeah, That's right. So... So, I, you know, to be honest, I mean, had he not been there, had he and Lear, actually the whole crew, I mean, I, the dynamics that ended up playing out from there on, everyone sort of took their almost instinctively assigned role of what was to happen. So um, Ron Cohen being the only other physician there, he and I were- Dr. Cohen. Dr. Cohen. Uh, <laughs> we're sort of going back and forth, trying to decipher what actually happened. Now, we also don't have communication anywhere. So we had a little- Wi-Fi connector that maybe give us dial-up download speeds, you know, in, in, in the best of its days. So we couldn't research anything and really look anything up. Um, and of course the camp and the safari guards are prepared for an injury like this. I mean, this is, this is very rare. Um, well, so what a Maasai warriors. I, I, you know, I think back and I'm like, how at some point <laughs> over the hundreds of years that the Maasai people have been this around, somebody like, must have. This is the first this time they're probably talking about you right now around a campfire. <laughs> well, it's funny. I communicate with them every day. They're such sweet people. I, I'm, I'm actually um, texting with them and, and WhatsApping almost every day, <laughs> almost every day with the Maasai warriors. So what do you do at this point? Because it's pitch dark with the exception of the fires and the stars when they come out. And there's really not much communication. You got one possibility? Yeah, I mean, this, so this survival mode really kicks in at this point. So um, of course our immediate thing was get, get to medical facility as, as quickly as possible. Then no blood? Um, no blood, no. I mean, you could, you could probably see the, the swelling happened very, very quickly. Uh, so you could see the swelling happening. There could have been internal injury um, at that time, you Nothing just see your kneecap in your thigh, and yeah. no kneecap where your knee used to be. And no, yeah, there's an indent. Oh, uh, where the kneecap is supposed to be, and I have pictures documenting all of this stuff um, to show that, and it's 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 pretty disgusting. Um, but we extended out the leg again, and um, we made a makeshift splint using materials that we had on site, and just put sort of two hard plastic items on the side of my leg, and then taped my entire leg. Uh, to keep it immobile and straight. And then we had to call back into Nairobi and, and make a decision. Luckily, one of the safari guides had a phone that connected back into the city. And we talked to sort of the airport um, 
uh, medevac folks and, and we're having a discussion or they were having the discussion, especially Liron, about could we could they you know send in a chopper and fly me out? And after a couple of back and forths, I, we didn't realize, but there's actually a huge risk to flying into you know into a into the wilderness in the middle of the night. Um, a lot of these, first of all, we're in a, a pop-up campsite, so nobody knows exactly where we are. There's no lighting around. If a chopper or medevac plane was to come out, they'd have to land completely dependent on uh, their instruments because there's no uh, runway that you can see um, any part of. If you are landing using your instrument, you don't know if you're landing on a tree or an elephant. Um, and then all of the wild animals are hungry and active at night. So if they were to come and land somewhere at a distance from our campsite and we would have to trek out there, it puts us at risk and venturing out off of the land after the campsite without the necessary protection. And of course, a lot of these animals can sense injury as well. So Ron and I actually had to make a critical decision. And one of the things that we were going back and forth, or Dr. Cohen, I should say, that we were going going back and forth uh, that we didn't tell anyone else is that had the kneecap been dislocated and we, we didn't have the diagnosis right, there's actually one main artery and one main nerve that feeds the bottom of your leg. And if my kneecap was compromising that artery or nerve and we wait until the morning, I would essentially have to get my leg amputated. So the critical decision that we're thinking of, do we risk? Could you, could you not tell, what, what did they call that? Babinski's reflex, where you press down on a fingernail or a toenail to see if the blood, it recirculates. Yeah, that's very good. Down. Yeah, it's a B- Babinski reflex. So you essentially run- I remember run, from when I worked I'm, in the hospital. I'm impressed, Cal. Yeah. I'm impressed. So yeah, you run, uh, you run your finger along the bottom of your, um, along, of your foot, but it's not for this type of damage. Babinski reflex usually like if you're, if you're an infant and born, and let's say, for example, you have uh, some sort of uh, fever, um, it's to determine whether you have meningitis or not um, for a lot of things. So for the way you sort of run your finger along the bottom, you can see the, how the cur- toes curl. I right. see. So, but, but is was, there no way to determine whether the blood flow is reaching your tone, your toenails? Well, I mean, we were just observing it. Okay. So, for one, uh, from a nerve standpoint, I kept wiggling my toes. That's good. Um, and I was doing that all night. And 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 the second thing is, of course, making sure that I had temperature and sensation down um, in the feet that there there was blood flowing down there, and it wasn't sort of turning pale or blue um, in any sense. So, I was observing for that all night. I, of course, didn't tell the family or a number of others, but uh, Dr. Cohen and I sort of knew in the back of our heads that that was always a risk if we didn't fly someone in now. So we sort of made the decision, let's wait till daybreak in, in the morning, which was about uh, 12 to 14 hours away. Wow, that must have been a long 12 hours. Yes, it was. Did so you we sleep had, at all? No. I was, and the only thing you would, you would imagine that we would have amongst the amount of people that were there uh, some sort of high strength painkiller, but the best we had was a leave. <laughs> so for the next 14 hours, the only pain relief I had was, a, was a leave to tie me over. And so they couldn't leave me out in the, in the open tent. So they put me back into the, into the, um, covered tent. Um, and what was, what was interesting is now you've got other decisions to make, right? Like who goes back how bad is this going to be? Does the family stay here? Do they come back with me? And Liram and I made the decision that the two of us would just fly into Nairobi and everybody else stay back. And what was great about this whole thing is, is like I said, everyone took their role. So I think you've met Alec Malconian, you've met yeah. uh, Ryan Olihan. Yeah. So uh, uh, the big crew was there. And Ryan, of course, the jokester that he is, took my kids off and was cracking jokes. You know, he's part- a perfect guy yeah. for that role. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and then Lori, of course, being sort of very motherly and, and very soothing and empathetic. And Alec, of course, you know, cracking jokes and taking care of my wife and making sure everyone was set. So everyone sort of took their role. So I felt like we were in great hands. So I didn't have to worry about my wife and my kids. Like they were, with, with Lee and his crew, they were set. So we ended up making the decision So that Lee's going to come back with you, make sure everything back. is okay. And they had a hot air balloon 
set for that morning, which meant that they all had to leave the campsite by 3.30 before I could even get out. So there I am in the I thought you were going to say they were going to get you in the hot air balloon and send you. Okay, go ahead. So I'm practicing. There I am in in the tent. I'm I'm practically convulsing. Um, I'm sure I'm I'm shaking. I'm 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 in breathing of pain, um, and just not knowing what to think. Right, just trying to get to the next step. And uh, so the family ends up leaving, and I assure them I was like, oh, everything will be fine. I don't want to worry him too much. You guys go. There's no sense in everyone, all of us going back. So then they all leave. So then the safari guides, Lee Ram and myself are there uh, around 7.30 in the morning. Uh, we, so they sort of wake me up. Now, here are things like I can't stand up. I can't stand. So little things. I mean, think about bathroom. So I had to be propped up, you know, and held. And all, I mean, there's just all these little tiny things Lee that we had thought about. to the rescue, man. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so we had to pack a little backpack for, for whatever, for, for, you know, for not knowing what to expect with a spare clothes. And, and they throw me on, all they had is a pickup truck. And they <laughs> oh, no. l- literally take the mattress off the cot and lift me and put me on the mattress in the back of a pickup truck. And we have to drive 30 minutes to the landing strip of where the medevac plane is coming in. Um, and it was gonna come in, it was gonna leave Nairobi at eight and get there by 8.30, 8.45. And we had about a 30 to 40 minute drive. Now. So they throw me on the back of this pickup truck. We're all in there. Liram's in the front passenger seat. Um, and then one of the guides actually sat in the back with me to keep me occupied because I was in so much pain. And there's no roads. So you're just going over hills, bumps, oh, rocks. All the, every bump. Every bump was, oh, I, I could feel man. it. So we finally get there and we get to the, to the sort of makeshift airstrip in the middle of the, the wilderness. And uh, the plane is there. Um, they put, throw me on a stretcher, get me in the plane, put in an IV, and I get my first real dose of pain relief, 14 and a half hours later. So 14 and a half hours later, I'm in this plane, not one dose, two doses, two hits of fentanyl, three hits of fentanyl, four hits of fentanyl. It took me four hits of fentanyl in order for me to get pain relief at that point. So, um, Now, are and, you thinking like a doctor during this, or are you in so much pain that you are a patient? I, you know, I, I toggled back and forth because there are certain moments where you have to think like a doctor. Um, you know, for example, like my, you know, my toes wiggling, just make sure all of that stuff is stable and, and, and know what to do in case it does start to go south. Um, and other points, I just wanted to be the patient, like just, you know, just somebody sympathize with me, empathize, understand what I'm going through here. Um, but it was, it was a really surreal feeling. I, I don't know how to really describe it but it was the sort of it's probably the first time I ever felt being the patient and the doctor simultaneously like I've gone back and forth but simultaneously having to do that I think it was the first time I've ever experienced that that must have been wild yeah and that was the start of the journey <laughs> okay so now you're on the plane you got some pain relief Liram's at your side Liram's there at my side and of course I had my uh, you know, being uh, the two types of individuals that we are, we're like, let's document everything we can. Oh, here's another funny thing. So as we're driving to the, the landing strip, um, it was so early in the morning and the best time to see the fresh kills from overnight is right at that moment, you know, when the, when the sun's coming out. And as we're driving to the strip, we had to make a pit stop because we saw these hyenas <laughs> made a fresh kill and were eating their prey uh, right there so in the, the field. So the safari so had, didn't stop. It didn't stop. It kept going. I mean, you got to do what you got to do when you're out there, right? So um, we got good footage of that, and that was really exciting. So we get on the plane, we fly into Nairobi, and of course, Lee Rom is just unbelievable. Like, I don't, we don't even have to discuss anything. He's got the next, he's already thinking two, three steps ahead. So by the time we even land at Nairobi airport, there's already an ambulance waiting for us. And he's, you know, set this up, and he's got an incredible assistant back in Toronto who's now awake and staying up all night, um, helping us out, uh, Julie Kim. And, uh, you know, she's, oh, yeah. she's, oh, yeah. yeah, so she's running a lot of the show behind the scenes and, and I have no clue what's going on, but everything, you know, Lee, of course, is taking care of. So we get into the hospital and it's a Sunday of all days, right? So it's a little slower than usual. <laughs> Things aren't running, you know, everything's not under operation as it normally is. But luckily one of our safari guides knew of an orthopedic surgeon to call ahead of time. So when we got to the hospital, there's an orthopedic surgeon uh, waiting uh, for me, and, and they take me um, in to get an X-ray, in to get a uh, CT scan, in to get an MRI. 
Um, and at every one of these scans, they're shifting you from stretcher to stretcher. And I've got no stability on this leg. And so every move was just super painful. I probably got moved from bed to stretcher to something at least 20 to 30 times over the course of, of me getting back home, maybe even more. And so um, after a series of tests, I'll come back. It all confirms a complete patellar tendon rupture. Um, but I also have a partial MCL tear and I have a chronic meniscal tear, medial meniscus tear. Um, and then one of the radiologists uh, thought they read what's called a uh, proximal tibial fracture, which is, a, which is an emergency um, type of fracture, uh, which would require surgery immediately. So at this point, now we need to make a decision. Do we stay at this hospital? Do I get the surgery done? The orthopedic surgery a surgeon saying that he can conduct it, but we don't know anyone there, right? We don't know the local health system. Um, we don't know the quality of it and so forth. And so we're, we're throughout the whole day trying to figure out what decision do we make. I can't, in the meantime, can't really reach my wife uh, and my kids because they're on a hot air balloon somewhere in a safari. <laughs> Luckily, Dr. Ron Cohen had grabbed a phone from one of the safari guides out there and was sort of communicating back and forth and giving us updates. Dr. Cohen. And we were doing the same with him. And between him and, and, and Liram, they'd agreed that they would just go ahead and at least prepare to have a surgeon ready should I need to fly anywhere else. So um, Ron had a surgeon lined up in Boston in case I had to fly back to Boston. Uh, and Liram had surgeons lined up in Tel Aviv, in London, and in Paris, which would be the closest shot to go from Kenya. Of course, but my ultimate goal was if I could make it back to the United States, back to home, that would be best, right? Because you're surrounded by family. It's a familiar environment. I'm a doctor, so I've got contacts there. Should anything go wrong? Um, so, you know, we're trying to assess the hospital and look around. Like, is there, I mean, if I were to stay, the surgeon said I, I wouldn't be able to fly out for at least two to three weeks, meaning everyone would be gone while I'm still in the hospital recovering and they will have to fly back. And I don't know the local language. I don't know the process. So um, we got a sign that sort of came out of like nowhere. So we were, the charity actually sent an individual over that we were supposed to be the Midui charity, sent an individual over uh, Olivia to um, help us in case we need to help and assistance in the hospital. And so she was very sweet and with us all day and getting us what we need. Um, and so she actually had a friend come in to the hospital. She's like, oh, my friend just texted me from the ER. And so Lira and I are like, oh, go, you know, find out what's going on. We're going to be here. We're still waiting for some results. So she goes and comes back. She goes, you won't believe this. He had surgery here three days ago and is now back for a post-op infection. So right at that moment, that was like our sign. So Lira and I looked at each other. We're like, we're out. So that made our decision. We're out of the hospital. It's, it's a wonderful hospital, but we didn't want to take any risk. You know, we're just looking for signs and someone to give us an answer. Um, and so at that point, we made the decision to go. So now we don't know what flights are available. It's about five in the evening. Um, and a little bit of the day left. We don't even know if flights are available. So luckily, Julie's been up all night looking Whoa. for flights. And oh, Lee, Rom's, Lee Rom's basically insisting. He's like, wherever you go, I'm going with you. Right? And I'm sitting here feeling, I'm already feeling guilty. Like, I've, dis I've disrupted this trip. And I oh, that's back. Lee Rom, though. That is totally Lee Rom, right? He's like, I'm going to be with you by your side. After the surgery, I'll fly back to Africa, no problem. Um, and I was like, there's no way. Like, he cannot come back. Like, everyone's here because of him. My family's still here. Um, and so, uh, Julie comes back and another sign that we had. So she comes back saying, well, it's just how it happens to be. There's only one seat left on the last flight home that night. So I was like, that's our decision. So Lee, you have to stay. So then Lee, of course, tries to negotiate. He's like, well, then let me at least set up, you know, medical assistance along every step of the way. Cause I'm flying back solo. Cause you, even if we wanted my wife and kids to fly back with me, they wouldn't be able to get until the next day. So I'm going back on this trip solo. Um, and so I had my orthopedic surgeon, I lined up my friend who's an orthopedic surgeon in Virginia at Hopkins um, to communicate with the surgeon in Kenya. So they spoke, agreed about medical clearance um, and allowing me to fly, but they had requested that I have a knee immobilizer or a leg immobilizer. So being a Sunday, the hospital didn't really have any real equipment in-house to be able to supply it. So they gave me sort of a soft knee brace, um, which didn't do any immobilization oh, no. of my leg. It just sort of still floppy. So then we're like, well, do we go to a store? 
and get like a real leg immobilizer to keep it straight. Now we don't have time because we got to get to the airport. We still have to arrange an ambulance to get myself over there. Um, what do we do? So I was like, I just need to get home because if we go and hunt down the real equipment, then we can't wait until the flight. next day. Right. Yeah. We can't miss a flight. We got to get. So we get the ambulance. We get to the to the airport, and of course, typical Liram size. Like I'm going to have you bypass everything and just go straight to the plane. It's like, how are you going to do that? He's like, just just wait here. So I'm sitting in the ambulance and he goes in there. And I don't know what he says, but somehow he comes back with the chief medical officer of Lufthansa on the, on the line. And he hands me the phone. <laughs> he tells, so I'm in there having a conversation with the chief medical officer of Lufthansa at like, at like nine o'clock at night on a Sunday and explaining my situation to him, trying to get medical clearance to be able to go on a flight, a 24 hour flight essentially back home. Um, and so he was a physician and you know, we were talking medically and he's like, okay, I'll give you the clearance, but I can't guarantee assistance along the way. It's so late and last minute. So I was like, fine. So they ended up taking the ambulance to the back of the airport and the security people just came out and met me there and checked all my passports and, and, and visas and all that stuff. And so I'm sitting in the baggage area in the back loading area of the airport and I can see the plane and I'm on a stretcher. And then all of a sudden, you know, the food, the food truck cart that <laughs> <laughs> that loads the plane. I get like they, they, that pulls up. My, they put my stretcher on that, and they literally hoist me up on the food cart thing up to the up to the 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 plane door. the The flight crew opens up the door, probably thinking they're getting a delivery of food or something. <laughs> and here are. comes this medical passenger boarding the plane. They all had. I remember just seeing they all had confused looks on their face faces and uh there i am getting wheeled into the into the uh airline um on a stretcher and all i have is a sort of the soft knee brace remember and i so my legs like just dangling and, and wobbly and i had this sort of half braces not even full crutches so i wobble over uh to the seat and i could only be in a first class seat because my leg had to be straight and luckily before we left liram had uh the idea uh just in case let's get a note from the hospital and the doctor saying that this is what the injury is. Uh, you know, he needs to keep it immobilized. He needs to keep it straight and elevated. So luckily, Liram, um, you know, had the idea of being able to get that. So we had that letter in hand. Um, now I'm on my own now. So Liram's not allowed past this. So now it's, it's me, um, you know, making all the decisions going forward. So we get to the seat and it turns out there's only one seat Row 39B, (laughs) a middle seat. So I had, I, well, I had a seat that I just couldn't sit in. I tried. What was, what was it? A middle seat? It it was, no, it wasn't a middle seat because it was first class and they were all two by two by twos, but I could only go in, um, left because of the way the seats are sort of angled. I couldn't sit in one that was angled right. So I had to convince the person to swap with me. He was really kind and swapped with me. I sit down and I prop my leg up. Um, because I can't keep it, I can't keep it down. I can't keep it, um, uh, you know, it has to be sort of straightened and elevated. So then, um, you know, other passengers are now pissed off because the flight's delayed and the, the, the staff crew the has no truck. clue what's going on. And here's the thing, here's the balancing act, because if I'm too medical, they won't let me fly. But I have to sort of indicate that I, I, I still need assistance and I can't do everything, right? So I still need some help. So, um, as you know, they're, they're reciting the whole emergency flight stuff. They come to me and they're like, sir, you have to put your leg down for takeoff and landing. I was like, I can't, I can't do that. I, I can't, I physically cannot do that. Um, they're like, well, you, you can't be flying on this plane. So I was like, can I speak to the pilots? So the pilots come out, this whole interruption. I speak to the pilot. Um, they're like, it's, it's federal aviation rules. You have to keep your leg down. You can't have it propped up. So I was like, listen, I, you know, I took out my note. Luckily, we had the doctor's note. I was like, listen, this is from the doctor. Um, and then they were still not agreeing. And I was like, let me just explain, because you couldn't quite see it, right? I was wearing a pair of loose pants above um, and just one shoe. Like, we calculated it down. I was just wearing one shoe. Um, so there wouldn't be extra weight on this leg. So what, what did it was I would take out my phone, and I had a picture of the x-ray. And I showed the, the crew members and the pilots the x-ray. I said, listen. Let me explain to you what happened. My kneecap is in my thigh. And the minute I say that, the visual picture just goes in their head. Their faces turn pale. They're like, okay, got it. Got it. 
So luckily this, this pilot was like, listen, I, I, you can't you know, keep it all the way up, but I'll let you just put the leg rest piece up. And then once we're fully up in the air, you can, you can extend it all the way out. So I was like, that's fine. And then even before we got on the plane, Liram and I had calculated that I needed to dehydrate myself and starve myself for a period of time because at any course during this flight, if I had to use the bathroom, game over. I could not get up or stand. They would have had to emergency land the plane. Um, so uh, literally I had a pair of backup clothes in my backup, in my backpack, in case I peed how, how long was the flight? Well, so I had from Nairobi to uh, Frankfurt and then Frankfurt to Dulles Airport in Virginia. Now, was, did you stay on the same plane or did you had a change? <laughs> oh, no. So I had a four hour layover in Frankfurt. <laughs> oh, no. so, I'm, so, I'm, so now we're on the plane. I just, you know, I, I can't sleep. I'm still in so much pain. All I have is Tylenol, by the way, is pain meds in me. Um, with a soft knee brace and the dangling, I haven't eaten, I haven't drank, and I don't eat for thirty. I don't eat for forty-eight hours. I don't drink anything for thirty-six hours, um, and uh, I have to be as pleasant as possible to the crew staff. Um, and so we we land in Frankfurt, and everyone deboards the plane. I'm like, there's a wheelchair uh, waiting, right? And it has to have a, a leg extender. They're like, well, there's a wheelchair but we don't have a leg extender. I was like, well, I can't, I can't sit on a regular wheelchair. My, my, my knee can't bend. I don't have a knee. Um, so they're like, well, there's yeah. nothing we can do. You have to call advance for the leg extender. I was like, no, I was like, this is Frankfurt. Like this is the big, one of the biggest international airports. You have to have a wheelchair with a leg extender. So 20, 30 minutes later, miraculously, a wheelchair with a leg extender shows up and no one can debark the, like the, the staff has to stay on the plane until everyone um, gets off the plane. So now the whole crew and the pilots are all there and they're fumbling around putting this little leg extender on. I hobbled my way over to the, 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 the sort of bridge gate of the plane, sit in the wheelchair, they elevate the leg. As they start pushing me, boom, the leg extender just collapses and drops. My leg goes crashing down and I belt out a scream that I didn't even know I had inside me. It was the loud, I felt like the entire airport must have heard me scream. So they were freaking out. They had no idea what was going on. So I was just like, lift up the leg, lift up the leg. So the poor guy who's just working the bridgeway just kept my, held my leg for 20 minutes until they called somebody over to fix that leg, the leg hoist on the wheelchair. So then we get all that fixed. I'm in severe pain. All I have is Tylenol. They take me to the uh, Frankfurt Lounge and I have a four-hour layover. So, you know. And you can't eat. So, yeah, what they do is they put me next to the food station thinking like, oh, if you like, you know, he can't get up, but maybe he'll help himself to some food. And I didn't have the, you know, I'm so lethargic. I didn't have the energy to get me away from the right. food. So I'm sitting there. And Probably like, next a, to the suites. There's like a, you know, a couch and a chair and a table. And then I'm sitting there in the wheelchair next to me and the food stuff right there. So now it's super early in the morning. And all of a sudden, because we're in, we're in Germany, in Frankfurt, um, in the Frankfurt lounge, the lounge is getting really busy. You're having all these international flights coming in from different places. And there, there must have been a flight that came in from India. Um, and there's this Indian family that ends up sitting next to me. And I'm Indian, right? So everyone probably thinks we're all together. But here's the situation. So the kid is vomiting profusely. Oh, no. right? It's like a little infant baby. The mother is vomiting profusely. Oh, my And the God. husband's just staring like, do something, do something. And all of their vomit stuff is literally being planted on the table sitting next to me. So I'm sitting here thinking like, oh my God, I cannot get sick. This is not the time I, I need to get sick. Like if I start vomiting, the game over for me. Plus I have to go into surgery at some point. They're not gonna let me in surgery if I'm sick. So I'm like freaking <laughs> oh, no. out. No one's paying attention to me because they all think we're all together. So finally I caught the attention of some guy behind and I just signaled to him to sort of wheel me 10 feet back. And so I was, I was able to maneuver my way out of that. So then fast forwarding a little bit, I get on the next plane. Now um, you're heading from Frankfurt now I'm back to the and States. Every step was just like, just get to the next milestone. Just get to, I didn't even, I wasn't even thinking too far ahead, right? So we get on the next plane and the same thing happens with the flight crew. You gotta, you know, you gotta put your leg down. Um, I had to switch seats again. I mean, it was the same thing just in repeat um, on my way to Dallas airport. So the, the pilots come out this time and they were a little bit more strict. They're like, listen, let's negotiate. Now I'm getting a little bit more frustrated because I have no energy. You know, I'm hangry uh, for the most part. And uh, uh, he's like, I was like, I don't know what you want to negotiate. 
but I can't, if it requires me to put my leg down, I can't do it. That's non-negotiable. So, um, luckily the person sitting next to me realizes, and it's like, everything was just pure fate. So the backpacks that Liram had bought us were a certain height and they were kind of rigid. And he noticed that the backpack that I was carrying was about the same height as the leg rest. So he's like, what if I were to just slip your backpack underneath your calf, would that prop it up? And at this point I was just looking for any solution. I was like, I'm so close to being home. So um, we end up sliding the backpack underneath. That becomes my leg rest for takeoff and landing. Um, and then we get back in the Dell, same thing, no wheelchair with a leg extender, same process over. I had called uh, my mother and brother-in-law. I was like, just bring the van, take out the back seat. I'll explain when I get there. Um, they didn't I even know what the happened. Car. They knew there was some emergency because obviously I'm coming back from Africa, but they didn't know what it was. And I literally had to sprawl out in the back of a, a van. I couldn't sit. I was just sort of laying flat in the cargo area in the back of the van. Oh, and they took man. me straight to the Got hospital. Them. Oh, so you get to the hospital. Are you happy? Oh, I'm, I'm thrilled at this point that I'm at this point. But now, now, the, now that the sort of medical side kicks in, like, all right, what's really wrong with me? How bad is this going to be? Like, at that point, it was just get to safety and get to a place that, that I can call home. Um, but the surgeon um, really eased, eased me. You know, luckily, he had, the first thing he said, he goes, I had the same injury seven years ago. What? And what are the odds of that? Like, a surgeon that's going to operate on you has the exact same injury, and it's super rare. Don't tell me he was dancing with the Maasai Ward. <laughs> no, he had a little bit more of a, a typical uh, injury in playing basketball. But uh, uh, yeah, so he, he ended up putting the, the full leg immobilizer on me. Um, I had taken an anticoagulant in order to get approval to fly uh, so I don't get any clots while I was flying. Although that was a huge, huge risk um, just because of the nature of my injury um, and the duration of the flight. And uh, so we waited another 24 hours. I had a window of 72, um, basically three to five days to get the surgery done, otherwise complications kick in. And I literally had my surgery based on the sequence of events, the, di the fifth day um, of the injury by the time I made it. Whoa, back. and you come through it su successfully? Well, I, I come through the, the surgery successfully, but we didn't, um, what was really surprising was the amount of pain that would kick in after the surgery. So if I thought the pain was bad before the surgery, um, for whatever reason, the pain after the surgery was much, much worse. And after we did an analysis of it, uh, the, uh, we realized that there was so much trauma that had been done to my knee prior to the surgery that we didn't account for, right? Being shifted from bed to bed, you know, the swelling, the dehydrated, you know, I dehydrated myself. So I wasn't getting fluids. I didn't eat, um, the air pressure on a flight for 24 hours, all of that factored in created much more trauma to my knee than a typical wow. injury or surgery would have been. Well, it, what was it like looking down after the surgery and seeing your kneecap in the right place? In the right place? Like they got it in the right they place, did, they right? They did, yeah. So what was it like after all of this to look down and see after the surgery, there it is. Relief. It was such relief. But here's, here's the funny thing. I didn't, you know... It's such a rare injury. Like even in medical school, in my training, I didn't see any of these injuries. I mean, it was, it was that rare. Um, and so I had no idea. I didn't have time to do research. I didn't look anything up. I mean, I literally went into the surgery blindly, just fix it and get my knee back in position. I'll deal with whatever I have to afterwards. I didn't realize the, 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 the amount of recovery it would take after the surgery. And that was a complete shock to me. And I just wasn't prepared for that. Well, what is that? So uh, unlike like a total knee or an ACL repair, they have your knee moving within 24 to 48 hours of the surgery. Um, but because mine was a tendon repair, they essentially drill three holes into your kneecap. They take your tendon and they just sew it through the three holes oh, and they tie it up. Man. But your tendon actually regrows itself back onto the kneecap. Wow. Um, and in order for the, the, the tendon to regrow back, you have to keep your knee and leg immobile for an extended period of time. Um, anywhere between two and four weeks, at least, in sort of a straight leg immobilizer. And what happens is your scar tissue develops. My, my knee was like the size of a cantaloupe. And it, was, it was massive and swollen. It was the size of a cantaloupe? Yeah, it was, it was so massive. And it was solid. It was like a rock if you'd hit it. 
And all of that was just scar tissue buildup and fluid that was in there. Whereas for an ACL or a total knee replacement, they have you moving so quickly that you never allow the scar tissue to develop. Right. So I'm in, I'm in rehab and therapy uh, several times a week. I have to do it every day for about two hours um, and up to, up to a year. Um, so I've got a straight leg knee brace on, on and off now up until about six months for protection. One year before I'm doing my normal regular activities and two years before full, full recovery. Wow. So looking back on the whole saga, what, what are your takeaways? What are your main lessons? So this was, um, I mean, as, as I can look back at it now and, and, and sort of reflect positively on it and, uh, you know, Oh man, when you think of the possibilities. I I was, um, I'll I'll be honest. I was, I, I had some really down days. And uh, it was, you know, why is this happening? What does this mean? I had just last year uh, lost my father who had battled Alzheimer's and had taken care of him. My mother-in-law goes through a severe stroke uh, this year as well. And now this was happening. And I was just trying to find meaning in this whole thing. Like, why, why is this happening to me, to us? Um, and I didn't quite understand it. And, uh, you know, when, after the surgery, after realizing, you know, what, what kind of damage did happen, I mean, I was... I was I was uncontrollably crying. I mean, for for a few days, and um, there was no sort of community to go back to. There's one or two people you can find on the internet with this injury um, that you can really lean on. But it seemed I I started to recognize that the emotional symptoms that I was having um, were normal for this type of injury. Uh, but I mean, looking back, the type first and foremost, gratitude. I mean, every. As, as, as much as went wrong with the injury, there are way more things that went right. And they didn't go right because of luck. They went right because of the people that were there. Yeah, right, right? because Every, of Lee Rom. Because of Lee Rom, who stepped in and did Dr. anything Cohen. necessary. You know, Dr. Cohen with Ryan, with Alec, with Lloyd. Wow. Every, everyone took their, their role um, in sort of filling in the gaps as, as if it was all just to fall in place, like this was sort of meant to happen. Um, and just the, the, the element of being in so out of your, I, I had no control over anything. And I was really dependent on this entire ecosystem, um, but they made it happen. And to be honest, we're all much closer than ever before. And uh, I think it was not just, you know, an awakening for me, but I think for all of them too. I think everyone sort of took their moments out of it. Um, but there's probably a dozen lessons out of this whole thing that I took uh, you know, gratitude being being one of them. So I'm very grateful every every single day. I, I I'm observant of, of all the things and the support structures that we have. Um, you know, there's uh, things that we neglect over a period of time, and so part of it was sort of a lesson of um, chronic neglect. We sort of deprioritize things to sacrifice for something else, and I think I I neglected parts of my body. Um, in areas that um, I probably should have given more attention to in terms of um, being more mindful of my fitness and, and my nutrition and so forth. Wow. Um, that sort of caught up, you know, being, being now 43 and, and not the, the, the young blood that I used to be, um, even though I'm, I'm still very, I was, I was still very active. Um, but even as it applies to like professional life, um, you know, time is limited. And there are things that I'd sort of put on the back burner and neglected um, thinking that there'll be one day that I'll get to it. And so it was really an eye-opener for me that the minute I had my ability to get back on my feet and, and travel, I was, I was more pumped than ever. And I was like, you know what, I'm not gonna wait. The things that I've always wanted to do and go after, I'm gonna do it. Um, so don't neglect those things anymore because nobody ever regretted the things um, that they did when they look back, where they, they neglect the things that they don't do um, after looking back. And so I wasn't gonna be one of those individuals. Well, let me tell you, it was great seeing you walk into breakfast this morning. And it's great hearing this story. I, I feel like I went on the journey with you. And I'm just happy to be with you, brother. I'm happy to be with you too, Cal. I mean, this is, uh, you know, to be able to sit here and actually tell the story, um, we have a lot of it documented in pictures and so forth. And quite frankly, um, not necessarily the story I ever imagined, but uh, certainly one that I'm actually grateful for because I think 
there's not just things that I've learned in the whole journey of it, but I think a lot of other people have been learning quite a few lessons from it as well. And a few more will when they hear this <laughs> podcast. So you stay healthy. And I look forward to seeing you many, many, many more times. I don't know if you're going to be dancing like a Maasai, but I've seen you on the dance floor. I hope those moves return. <laughs> Thanks, Cal. Love you, brother. All right. Love you, too. Cheers. That about wraps it up. I want to thank Tim Ferriss for insisting that I start this podcast. I never would have gotten a photo from Per Hansen inviting me to ice fish in Nyladen, Sweden, if not for Tim. Please send a photo of where you listen to Big Questions through calfussman.com. Those photos always make my day, and they've started a few friendships. Also encourage you to check out my sponsors. Go to myintent.org for info about the bracelets and other accessories and see how affordable a transformational gift can be. That's myintent.org, M-Y-I-N-T-E-N-T.org, my intent. And go to sportique.com to check out the hoodies, sweats, and comfy tees. I love to bike in my hoodie. Kevin, the manager, sleeps in his sweatpants. And if you know anybody who's going through a difficult time medically, trust me, they'll be so happy to receive some Sportique threads as a gift. It will lift his or her mindset, even change his or her day. We'll see you next week with some of the best takeaways from guests during the last year. And you'll also hear some amazing stories from the winners of the Why Is Your Best Friend Your Best Friend contest. A lot of hoodies going out. Guaranteed to be a great start to the new year. Cheers. Cheers.